Hello and welcome to your Bible study programme with your teacher Brian Johnston and me, John. You're listening to Search for Truth and thanks for tuning in. Our present series is called Sowing in Hard Soil, where Brian seeks to support anyone working to communicate the gospel, particularly where people's hearts may be hard, such as in Western society. How do you get on with people who say there is no God? Well, now with Brian, we look into the Bible and our history to uncover firm evidence for the existence of God. So let's go to Brian now. Thanks, John. On a few occasions in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul urges his readers not to lose heart. In particular, he appeals they don't lose heart in evangelism. This appeal can be found twice, in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And if we're in the Western world today, it's not hard to appreciate why he had this concern about people losing heart. Paul had encountered in certain places the same stony indifference that we can come up against, ranging even to outright hostility at times. We can all too readily identify the same features in society around us that the Apostle Paul diagnoses in the Greco-Roman world of the first century AD. And we recall that it was in places such as Capernaum that our Lord could do no mighty work. That is, rather, he chose not to due to their lack of faith. The German philosopher Nietzsche, who died in the year 1900, is the person most famed for popularising the notion that God was dead. In other words, the age of faith in a deity who was our maker and judge was over, he said. Darwin had by then recently made it possible for people to believe there was no God, only time and chance. And if that was true, then it followed that we could just make up our own rules. Nietzsche understood that such an idea, as with any idea, had consequences. With the framework of absolute truth and morality dismantled, he foresaw the horrors that awaited the world in the 20th century, that being the bloodiest in recorded history. He realised the atheist dream was unlivable, turning the world into an Auschwitz. He personally died a madman, and it was as if he had even predicted this fate, for he famously wrote, The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I, all of us are his murderers. Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Nietzsche's atheism, unlike many contemporary atheistic mantras, was not simply rhetoric and angry words. He recognised that the death of God introduced a significant crisis. He understood the critical role of the Christian story to the very underpinnings of European philosophy, history and culture, and so understood that God's death meant that a total and painful transformation of reality had to take place. If God had died, in the sense that God is no longer of any use to us, then ours is a world in peril, he reasoned, for everything must change. Our typical way of thought and life no longer makes sense. The structures for evaluating everything have become unhinged. 
He spoke of erasing the horizon and not knowing which was north and which was south anymore. This delusion that God is dead still permeates much of Western society today. And it is a delusion. Make no mistake about it. Listen to how the Apostle Paul will come to talk about society having been blinded, or in other words, deluded. But we'll start a little further back in his writing at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here he begins by contrasting the law of Moses with its famous Ten Commandments, contrasting it with Christianity and the supernatural empowerment it provides through the Holy Spirit given to believers by God. So let's listen to Paul from 2 Corinthians 3 and from verse 7. He says, But if the ministry of death, in letters engraved on stones, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Let's pause there to appreciate the contrast Paul has just made. We are not like Moses, he says in verse 13. In that, Moses put a veil over his face. The difference, he says, is that we the witnessing Christian believer, we remain unveiled before others as we communicate God's good news in Jesus Christ. Both beholding God's glory and reflecting or mirroring it to others in an unveiled way. A Christian preacher first stands in the presence of God, at that point unveiled like Moses, but the preacher continues to remain unveiled, unlike Moses. However, there is still a veil it's now transferred to unbelieving hearts, as Paul goes on to explain, 2 Corinthians 4 from the top of the chapter. Therefore, since we have this ministry, he says, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. 
For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Yes, indeed, Satan blinds the unbelieving to the glory of the only Saviour, who is Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice that we were reminded there of some of the first words found in the Bible. They concern God's working in creation, when famously, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God said, Let there be light. This was what we heard Paul saying a moment ago as we read from 2 Corinthians 4. God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has not left himself without witness or evidence. Although the text references God creating and bringing light out of darkness in order to point to his fuller revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, I want to pause on the first part for now. That is, I want us to think first of how it's possible to detect the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the act of creation. The Bible testifies to the glory of the Creator. A sceptical world demands evidence for the existence of God. We can begin right here with the universe around us. I know some illustrious names have lent credence to the idea of the universe somehow managing to create itself. But even those at the level of philosophy 101 understand that this can never withstand scrutiny at the most basic level that we can all understand. Because there is a law, known as the law of non-contradiction, and it doesn't allow for anything both to exist and not exist at the same time. No more than a door can be green and not be green at the same time. And a universe that's busy creating itself has somehow got to exist, so as to do the creating, but also not to exist, so as to be created. And that is just nonsense. Ah, but someone will sneer, this doesn't apply to the mysterious world of matter and antimatter, which when combined give you nothing, and so just as easily, in reverse, you can get something out of nothing. Really? No, not really. This is smoke and mirrors, I'm afraid. This so-called nothing is not nothing at all. It's a sea of energy, obeying some special laws of physics, and that's not nothing. That play on the word nothing is the same type of illusion as saying margarine is better than nothing, and then adding nothing is better than butter, and then claiming that you can put these two sentences together and reason that margarine is better than butter, when clearly you've been using the word nothing in two different senses in these two sentences. It's smoke and mirrors, as we say, Let's put it another way. If you were walking along the beach and saw a perfectly formed capital letter A scratched in the sand, what conclusion would you draw? Would you suppose that the random actions of the tides, winds and waves had dragged along some pebble or brushwood and randomly formed that letter? I doubt it. You'd much more likely assume someone whose name begins with the letter A had left his or her mark. And that's just one letter. 
you don't need me to remind you that in every cell of our bodies, in the human genome, we have three billion letters that describe who we are, at least genetically. These are the gifts that we receive from our parents in terms of DNA. The complexity of the human cell and of the marvellous information molecules of our DNA was sufficient to cause one renowned British atheist to renounce atheism. Very late in life, he finally came to glimpse something of the light, of the knowledge, of the glory of God in creation. Glory that's also declared by the heavens, the Bible says. I was in blindness away from the Lord, knowing no gladness, living in sadness, until the light of his wonderful word flooded my sinful soul, making me whole. I'm happy in my Savior, in my Savior. Why is it important to believe in God? Well, Belief in God is our starting point, which brings us the opportunity to take action with regard to our relationship with God. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please God, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now I'd like to remind you that all our talks are available online or as a transcript book, Either you can download a copy from churchesofgod.info forward slash media or if you're not able to do that and you'd like to request a hard copy book just write in and ask for sowing in hard soil. You can use email or the post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY UK. And our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, I've enjoyed our time together today and I hope you have too. It's goodbye and very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. See you again soon. And in the meantime, may God richly bless you. I was in blindness away from the Lord, knowing no gladness, living in sadness. Until the light of his wonderful word flooded my sinful soul, making me whole. I'm happy in my Savior, in my Savior, happy in my Savior, in my blessed Savior, trusting the Lord, my sorrow is gone, happy I follow.